Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Hi. I'm so happy to welcome you to the Special Education and Advocacy Podcast. I, you guys, met April through the podcast and social media channels, and April sent me this wonderful email and said, I would like to speak at your conference. And so here we are. We've got April, a student of the ABC course um, and a big time, important, exciting, involved, engaged advocate. April, why don't you introduce yourself to my audience? Well, hi, everybody. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for interviewing me, Ashley. Um, so yes, my name is April Rarig, and I am my hometown is Los Angeles, California. And I am an advocate, like Ashley said, and I was a school psychologist for about 20 years and a teacher. And I have three beautiful teenage boys and um, I am remarried and my husband has four children. So us and the seven kids are here in LA. Oh man, that is a busy, busy life. Now, my listeners that have been with me for a while know that I um, am really jealous of you, April, and it's not like even secret jealousy. It is real out live jealousy because in my heart, I think that I'm like a SoCal girl, not a wannabe SoCal girl. Like that is in my soul. It's just that my family accidentally like plopped me into Kentucky. And so I, I think I've told you I like to surf in the shallow end. I don't like to really surf, but I like to surf in the shallow end. And I really love Southern California. So I'm insanely jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to make it happen. I'm coming out there and, and I'm going to visit you. April, um, how long have you been working as an advocate? Tell us a little bit about kind of your journey to become a special education advocate. So, um, like I said, I was a school psychologist for about 20 years, but I feel like my time being an advocate started way, way long time ago. Um, when I was a teenager, I got asked to volunteer in a special ed school and, um, I loved it. I loved it. And I loved the challenge. I loved working with special needs kids. And I found that when I was a teacher, I started being a teacher and like the first day of teaching or the first week. I had this interesting experience where I had a kid in my class and the kid was not performing. Um, I taught in a low income school and all the students were struggling and this kid was doing nothing. He wasn't working, he seemed upset, he seemed sad. So I said, you know what? He probably has a disability. I need to refer him for testing. So this lady came along who was literally in the closet and I was like, who is this woman? <laughs> and I met her at the IEP and she's like, you know what, April? She said, he does not have a disability. He is gifted. And I was like, oh, like what? I had no idea. 
And I was hooked into school psychology ever since. I was like, that is what I want to do. I want to work with those kids that struggle, that excel, that are not able to access the curriculum. So that's where sort of it started. And then as the years that I progressed where I became a school psych and I interspersed those with teaching, I found that I loved the meeting portion. I love developing the IEP. I love going to 504s. I especially loved going to student study team meetings. And at all of those meetings, I was like, yes, let's figure out interventions. Let's figure out a plan. And everyone was so shocked because they're like, as you're a school psych, don't you want to refer everybody? And I was like, no, no, absolutely not. I want to really, you know, work with those kids and see what they need and help them to be included and to help to feel belong. So that's sort of where it started. And then not that long ago, I became an advocate um, about a year and a half ago, right before the pandemic hit. And um, I was a volunteer um, in an LA organization that worked with low-income families. And I absolutely loved it, but I had the same thought that I do now where I wanna teach and you know, help others in a group setting and really help parents feeling like they could really meaningfully participate in the process. And that's where I met you, Ashley. And that's where I was really inspired by your work. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, you know, that's, that is why I'm so happy to have developed the ABC course, because I think there are a lot of people that have similar paths, people that start in schools or start as parent advocates themselves for their own families, and in your case, both apply. And then they take this journey um, or an exploration into advocacy for other people. And in your case, you did something that I recommend to people all the time, which is get involved in some kind of volunteer or, um, or less significantly involved opportunity to advocate, whether that's through an organization or it's as a parent advocate, or um, I, I love how you did it with um, children that were lower income that needed advocacy from a different perspective. Um, but then, you know, always, 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 you have to dial back and get the real content, get the good information on A, how to advocate, B, how to run a business. And then also see the actual content, the actual concepts of special education and the laws and the um, rules that surround that. So um, you did it the way that I would have prescribed. And time and time again, I was seeing people come um, to me saying, hey, I think I want to be an advocate. Where do I get started? And so finally I said, well, how about if I make something for you? <laughs> So we were happy to have you in the ABC community, and I'm always happy when you weigh in on a topic of conversation over in our um, conversation portal, because, um, you know, your wisdom from so many different aspects of the table, so many different roles that you've played at the IEP table are important. Um, so my next question is, what do you love about this advocacy job? What are, you know, kind of what are the high points of your job as a special education advocate? I feel like the high points are helping parents understand that they can really be meaningful participants at the table. So many families I've worked with, whether they've had a settlement agreement or they've gone the due process route or they're frustrated and angry, and I've gone through the same things myself. Um, they, they find out a bit of information. Hey, you can do a parent input statement. Hey, you can ask for a draft IEP. You can ask for a draft 504. You can ask for a report before, or you can ask, hey, can we have a meeting? I'd really like to have an IEP. My kid is struggling. 
And the parents hearing that information is like, oh my gosh, if I would have known that, I wouldn't have had to pay my attorney thousands of dollars. I wouldn't have had to file for due process. And just knowing that information, the parents light up, it eases the, you know, the stress on the shoulders and really help parents feel like, you know what? I can be part of this team. I'm not just like receiving the IEP. I'm part of a team. I can give my input. And then also, it also helps all the other team members too, teachers, psychologists. So I think people understanding that there's more information out there and then really understanding that people can work together on the team and help resolve differences. And that negotiation, like you said in your ABC course, is not necessarily a bad thing. And that working through that can really help ultimately the kids access the curriculum, which is the whole, whole thing we want in the first place. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what I love too. And I, I love it when I walk home, in fact, my husband now says it to me because I probably solicited the compliment enough. But when I finish a meeting, close my computer or shut my car door, and feel like I made a difference for those parents and that the parents are going to, that I modeled for the parents behavior and advocacy styles that they can then emulate in future advocacy. I walk in the door and say, I'm good at my job. I know that I made a difference and that is so rewarding in and of itself. That is far more rewarding to me than the paycheck that's associated with it. Knowing that you're giving people the skills to improve their children's education, which is something that I personally value very significantly, is really, really rewarding. So you and I align on that very much. And, and I, I think a lot of people can identify with that, particularly people that go to school to be teachers, right? Because that's, that's what we want to do. Um, so April, kind of along those lines, if people, and we're going to talk about psych school psych topics that's really why you're here but um because there are people out there that oftentimes ask i'm sure they're asking you they ask me all the time um how do i get started as a special education advocate do you have any suggestions for people well your course the abc course was awesome and i was very inspired by it and i absolutely loved it and what i love about your course and the other course i'll talk about in a second is that it focuses on the meeting negotiations. It focuses on giving parents wins. It also focuses on tools and strategies to help everybody at the table. Um, and so um, I also um, took a COPA's seat um, two and three course. And those were really awesome because they gave you a lot of legal strategies. Um, it gave me a lot of background information. Um, but the heart and the soul of my advocacy, the program was through NSEAI, the National Special Education Advocacy Institute. And what I love about Marie and um, MJ and their program is that it worked on what are the tools that parents need? What can we do at the table? It worked on the whole child, not just what is the legal background, but where do we go from there? What do we do in order to help with the inclusion, help with the sense of belonging? And I really felt like it gave me a wide range of toolkits and knowledge and it was individualized. So I was lucky that I got to do your program, the NSEAI and the COPA because I felt like you know all three of those were helpful, but I definitely wouldn't recommend all three to everybody. <laughs> 
Well, it's funny. You kept going and kept going and kept going. And what I notice is that so many of my students have our personality because I have your personality too. I was talking to Rachel, my tech and marketing guru about this today. Like there are so many of us and there's people that have been on calls between, you know, with you and me together, April, that fall into this category of like, I want more. I want to keep learning. I want to keep doing it. I'll tell you this funny story. Um, Ohio contacted me and said, Hey, you don't have your continuing ed hours in. And I like laughed out loud because every year I take at least 80 hours of continuing ed because I go to two 40 hour conferences. And then I usually presented a couple conferences that are multi-day conferences. And if there's something that just comes across my desk and it's a three hour webinar, I'm like, oh sure, I'll do that. And I'll, and I'll fold laundry while I do that. I love continuing ed. I have um, adult onset ADD or ADHD or more probably appropriately adult diagnosed ADHD that's been inside this body my entire life. And I'm an Aries, so I just don't get stuff done. I take the courses, I just never turn into the paperwork. <laughs> so Ohio people, it's coming, it's on its way. Um, but truly, you know, those kind of deep dives are, um, I think, kind of attendant secondary to our personalities. Um, but I will, I will second what you said about, I'm like writing down the acronym that you gave me because I'm like, oh, maybe I want to take that course. Um, but COPA, I have not done SEAT, um, but I have plenty of friends and students that have done SEAT. It is legit, like master's level type of commitment, um, which is why I did not do it when I started doing this kind of work because it was more than I could probably carve out of my workday. Um, but, oh man, COPA is a phenomenal organization and definitely one that I would recommend getting involved in if you're embarking on this journey for sure. So I'll second that. Um, and thank you. Yes, I'm happy that the um, course, that my ABC course was helpful for you as well. So today's topic, here's our title, how to do standardized assessments. Oh, sorry. How do standardized assessments miss the mark on student performance? And I love this topic because this is something that I talk about all the time. Yes, we have these assessments, but are they actually talking to us about the student's performance and most importantly, the projected performance? Because we're supposed to use the evaluation data to write the, the plops, the present levels of performance or whatever your state calls them, and then to develop goals from that. So we're supposed to use the evaluation data to write the IEP. And that's kind of the start to finish piece of special education. So first question, what are the standardized assessments that we're going to be talking about today? So standardized assessments are anything that could be given in the formalized setting one-to-one. -one. Typically, they're normed, and they're normed on a wide range of students. Each assessment is normed differently, and they're also updated with the norms. So when you see a test that's like a WISC-4, WISC-5, that means that they updated their norms. So that's something to really look out for. But some tests are normed on a really wide range. Some tests are normed on students with special needs, some are not. But standardized tests are basically a formalized assessment where you are compared to someone else, either your own age or your own grade. 
And so we've got this like ginormous group of people that they've tested and then they've decided here's the first percentile and the second percentile and here's how the average kids do and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, so we're talking statistics. Now, April, I loved what you said about school psych. And I always say if I had to do it ever again, I would be an OT because similar to what you said, I like to geek out about what's going on in the brain and that like processing of the child in order to then come up with solutions to whatever deficits we're looking at. Um, but I agree with you entirely that that's also what a good school psych does. A good school psych is looking in collaboration with other professionals at what are the deficits? What are the, uh, the relative strengths and, and objective strengths? And how can we take that entire profile and create, in the case of special education, specially designed instruction to help the child make progress on articulated goals? Um, and so I'm excited to kind of geek out with you about, <laughs> about this topic, which then kind of begs the question. So we, we know it normed tests are, um, what are we calling student performance? How can we define student performance? So student performance or what I like to call functional performance, it's much more about application. So it could be something like a criterion related test. It could be like, what is the mastery of a topic or a goal? Um, or it could be test the teacher. Like when I was a teacher, every grade level, we would be assessing how they would be doing. So when we would do the report card grades, we would say, okay, did they meet that mark? What do I put on the report card grades? And good teachers and good schools, especially elementary schools and middle schools and high schools, they have those teacher generated tests that are, that are universal across grade levels. And that's one thing that definitely standardized tests do not cover is the core curriculum and the state standards. They're not aligned. Yeah, which is problematic. We talked about that for a second before we hit record. So yeah, I think we're getting there in a second. And that's really good foreshadowing. It's like, bum, 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 stay tuned for more information. Um, so I told, I told, we should, to be fair to our podcast audience, I think I'm a little silly today because I'm dizzy. I get vertigo. Hopefully it's just vertigo, but I'm dizzy in my brain. I'm dizzy in my soul. It's just all a little silly. Um, so April, you know, kind of the big question, the big topic is then how do the standardized assessments miss the mark on student performance? Why, when we take these standardized assessments, do they not tell us about that student performance? And I, and you know, student with that kind of vague description of what student performance is, right? Like maybe part of the secret is identifying for every single case why we're doing the testing to begin with, which would be brilliant if we were supposed to do that. So you are exactly right, Ashley. That's what I'm talking about. So um, my big push is when we do an assessment or any school, good school psychologist, they're looking at the referral reason, right? Why was the student referred? And then pushing out that referral reason into the assessment, right? That drives the battery you're choosing, the individualization, and then it also drives looking at different things different ways. So if you give a standardized test, you're always gonna to wanna to back it up to with what's called the two-factor method. You're looking at different situations. So 
let's say the student did the WISC, an IQ test, and they scored in the average range. But then in the classroom, they're getting Fs and Ds. And in the middle school and the high school, I saw this all the time with students with suspected ADHD or diagnosed ADHD or anxiety or mood disorder. And the psychologists were like, I don't understand. Like the student is not performing. And I said, because that is the difference between a standardized test and actual performance. So if you use this two-factor method, you're looking at how does this apply? How is this relevant? Just because at that point in time you were tested, it doesn't necessarily mean a carryover and has nothing to do with incidental learning, how you read the room, how you observe from others. It doesn't have to do with motivation executive functioning, and it definitely doesn't have to tie with the standards. So it's very, very common that you see with students with ADHD, mood disorders, dysregulation, where they score awesome on standardized tests and they fail. And many, many times they don't end up qualifying for special education services because they're only looking at that one measure. They're only looking at the standardized test scores and they're not looking at the functional performance. And we all know with students, once you age out of special ed, once you graduate from high school, if you take your IEP to college and get a 504 plan, that application of knowledge, that functional relevant skills, that's the bread and butter. That's what matters. And that's what we need to drive the IEP towards is what are the strengths? What are the unique learning needs? And how can we apply this knowledge? It's not about coins, right? It's about what can they do? How can they be interdependent with other students? Oh, man, like you have a special gift because I can do that, what you just did in a meeting when I get excited about how people aren't understanding, but you just did that with that much excitement and that, and you were so articulate, even though like you didn't just walk out of a meeting and, and you weren't all fired up. So yes, yes, that was absolutely dead spot on to the way that I feel about it. And so I wouldn't be Ashley Barlow if I didn't say, okay, well, there's a problem. We've identified a problem now, but I'm a fixer. What's the solution to this? So I think the solution is helping on the parent side, helping them understand that along with their input, they can submit parent input statements, a parent report. I highly suggest that. Here's what's happening at home. Here's what the homework is. I have all this data, right? All of that data is extremely relevant. And then at the school level with the special ed and the general ed teacher, it's for them to talk about, okay, here is their executive functioning skills. Here is their attention span. Here is the application. Here's their test performance. We did an error analysis on this test and here's how they struggle. So therefore we're going to create and draft this goal to address that need. So it's looking at the whole picture. The standardized tests are one measure. And then if you do a reeval or supplemental assessment, yes, you look at the changes, but that is not the whole picture and that is not how it's relevant. So the IEP needs to move in that relevant direction. And once parents, students, advocates, the whole team kind of looks at the real life application, that is where I think we can improve in terms of IEP development. And friends that are listening, what you need to do is you need to listen to Pink and like Kelly Clarkson and Taylor Swift and like really like heartful kind of, I'm gonna say it, badass kind of music 
Then you need to listen to what April just said. And then a little more pink and a little more April and a little more pink and a little more April. And then you're gonna be able in a meeting to say what April just said. Because when I say what April just said, and then I say, so therefore, let's get out that evaluation planning form. And what I suggest is that we take a much deeper dive into this child's assessment, that we evaluate, we have an OT look at executive functioning, or we have a teacher look at executive functioning. We might bring in the social worker. I recommend parent, can you get a good thing from outside therapist or outside MD that talks about how does ADHD look in this child or how does dyslexia look in this child? So that we don't just know dyslexia, but we know specifically in real life with dyslexia, what kinds of things are you helping mom and dad on from an expert? And then let's look at all of that stuff. Let's look at the entire profile vis-a-vis -vis this academic testing and cognitive testing. And let's look at the whole picture and come back and see if we can figure out an IEP that also addresses executive functioning, which I think is like so, so important to the IEP and social emotional stuff and the functions of behaviors. If we've got problematic behaviors happening, like how can we address this attention function? Somebody can answer that for Jack Barlow today, January of 2022. I'd appreciate it because he threw my Apple watch out the window today. Um, I, but if we can look at all of that stuff, I think we'll be able to develop a better IEP. And I think that's the secret to doing it. April, do you agree? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, so many people that I listened to that talked about assessments and even my husband, even my ex-husband said the same thing. I'd be at home typing my report up late at night and they were like, why are you spending all this time in the report? Like, who are you writing the report for? And I started realizing, you know what, who's the consumer? It's not the special ed teacher. It's not the legal jargon, actually, that we have to write. It is the parent and it is the student. And so if we kind of realign the assessments, and I'm not just talking about school psych, I'm talking about everybody, and kind of draw those assessments towards the consumer and make them more readable and legible, that will help to drive the IEP because they're easier to read. Psych Great. assessments, and I'm a psych myself, they're really hard and complicated. Like, oh my gosh, they're so hard to understand. Yeah, that, and that's, that's a very good point. I really appreciate that. And I mean, you know, you and I feel passionately about it, but I think it says something. I know nothing about your family law history, but I think it says something when a wife, a former husband, and a second husband can all agree on the same thing as it applies to a fairly conflictual matter. So the proof's in the pudding right there, April. That's a, that's a good endorsement. <laughs> um, so April, another question, and, and I think, you know, I would be abandoning my Down syndrome and intellectual um, developmentally disabled community if I didn't ask this question. Um, another question is, do we do cognitive testing at all? Cognitive testing um, of children with intellectual disabilities has been um, suspected and is now being studied um, to prove that it's not usually a good indicator of a child's aptitude. So I always explain to my clients that we do cognitive testing, IQ testing, in other words, um, 
I'll just go ahead and say it. You know, nothing's perfect around here. The phone is ringing. I forgot to unplug my phone. So we'll just carry on as though everything's normal. Um, so we do cognitive testing to determine what a child's aptitude is. Generally, how are we supposed to be performing? And that's what that full scale score should tell us. Now we get good information on subtests. We get um, you know, information about short-term memory or, or um, fluid reasoning and, and those sorts of things. And your report will tell you what all of that means. But if we look at the full scale IQ score and then we look at academic scores, what we're looking, what we're expecting is that your academic scores will probably fall somewhat in line with what your full scale IQ score is because that's your aptitude. That's how you should be doing. So if your IQ is 100 and your reading comprehension is 100, then you're probably working at your potential for reading comprehension, which is in the case of 100, dead average. Little primer on cognitive and academic testing there. But in the IDD communities, um, what we're suspecting and what the current tests of the tests are showing is that they probably aren't capturing your cognitive aptitude or your ability appropriately. So then do we do them or do we not do them? And really what is the risk of doing cognitive testing? I think there's no risk of doing cognitive testing. I am, I value the testing. Um, and I think for every three-year evaluation, looking at the cognitive testing or at least reviewing the existing data is extremely helpful. At the same time, I totally agree with you, Ashley, is that a lot of the cognitive tests miss the mark. So for example, the WISC, um, some families I worked with as a school psych um, in the ID community wanted the WISC. And I would remind them, okay, well, the WISC has a lot of psychological processing in there, and it does have two aspects of fine motor development. So if you're taking these IQ tests, you need to take that with a grain of salt. So picking a different test like the lighter or the Welschler nonverbal is going to be much more appropriate. So it's looking at your child's unique needs, understanding their finer gross motor needs, and then also the other aspect that tends to get left out a lot is adaptive daily living skills or the ADLs. So that needs to be just as important as the IQ testing. And um, there's a lot of great assessments out there. And then there's some adaptive measures that are kind of eh, you know, rating scales. So I think looking at the big picture. So I think IQ testing is helpful. But again, like I mentioned before, it is not the whole product. And just because a student scores a 66 does not mean they have an intellectual disability. There's all these other aspects. I worked with so many kids that had aphasia, that had other things, and they were scoring in the 60s and 70s. They graduated from high school. They went on to community college. So it has nothing in terms of what you're able to do. So I think ultimately it's looking at the IQ testing in approximation with other things and then also having high expectations, assuming the kid can do well. That is the biggest thing that we tend to miss as school psychs. Amen, amen. I agree with you entirely. And to build on that, it should not drive placement. So your IQ score should not be an indicator of um, your placement. And yes, many states have um, a combination of IQ score and adaptive score, 
that then helps to determine disability category and disability category, unfortunately, is tied to teacher certificate and teacher certificate, unfortunately, is tied to um, classroom placement. And that is a shame. That is the case here in Kentucky. And it is something that I, um, you know, battle often. I always say the arm bone is not connected to the shoulder bone. There are beautiful tendons and muscles and ligaments in the middle. And that is what we're talking about is the nuance of this particular child. And so IQ scores should not drive placement. Um, and if you are worried that you don't have the advocacy skills or the, um, the, the fortitude to fight the battle and you suspect the battle will be uphill, then I would endorse skipping the cognitive testing. But just like you, I don't see a problem with it because I do think that we can identify relative strengths and weaknesses if we find it. Like who knew Jack Barlow, for example, hates math, hates math, won't do math for me, but on standardized tests, he does relatively very strongly in math and in fluid reasoning and math type skills, um, which totally aligns with his personality. He has incredible planning as it applies and fluid reasoning in real life but academically, he has a far stronger reader. So we can identify that he has a relative strength in that like math type functioning in his brain, which will help us choose good jobs for him and plan his high school elective courses and that kind of thing. We have good information because we have allowed him to take this testing, um, but we certainly didn't allow it to drive placement. And I will say, I am uniquely positioned to advocate against allowing it to drive his placement. And I acknowledge that. And I know that that is a privilege that is based on my, um, my professional experience. So April, I think we are absolutely aligned on that position as well. April, you are speaking at the conference, um, which is occurring on January 22nd, 2022 free virtual conference. We've got 15 plus speakers and topics lined up. And April, you're presenting on two different topics. Do you want to give people a little preview? Yes, I am. Um, I'm giving a presentation on the 411 of 504 plans. Uh, a lot of information that's regarding 504 plans that miss, truce, actual practical skills, um, lots of toolkits, and then I'm also presenting on understanding psychoeducational assessments from referral to recommendations to kind of going through that process. Oh my gosh, this is, I, I'm really, really looking forward to your presentations, especially after we've talked today, because I think you and I could like have a hallelujah moment every two and a half minutes. Um, Tell my community where they can find you um, and how they can learn more about the good work that you're doing out in California. So um, I was mentioning this to Ashley earlier. I am in development of my website and um, in my website, once it launches, it's gonna be having deep dived content. Um, I'm gonna be doing a really in-depth course with 
five modules on psychoeducational reports and reports in general. Um, but at the moment, I don't have a website. So if you would like to shoot me an email, I will put you on my spreadsheet and you will be uh, the first to know when I do launch. So um, if I could give the listeners my email address. Let's do it. It's pretty easy. It's my name. It's April at April Rarig, R-E-H-R-I-G dot com. April, I will also share that information when you send it to me when you're ready to go, because I think that you can provide so much insight and so much help to families in this um, in this realm of need. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for the good work that you're doing for the special education community out in California and beyond. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you. Thank you, Ashley.